Hello and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psychology podcast hosted by clinical psychologists Dr. Layla Din Osman, Dr. Mary Simmering McDonald, and Dr. Jennifer Rend. We hope that this podcast helps parents, children, and teens learn new coping skills in dealing with their stress and anxiety and to help strengthen relationships in their lives. everyone and welcome to our latest episode of The Coping Toolbox. I'm Dr. Jennifer Vrend and today I'll be joined by Dr. Jennifer Karp. Dr. Jennifer Karp completed her undergraduate degree at Queen's University and received her master's and PhD in clinical psychology from Concordia University. She has trained and worked in various community clinics and hospitals in Ottawa and Montreal. Dr. Karp is a clinical psychologist at the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy where she provides treatment for children, adolescents, and parents. She offers individual child and adolescent therapy to address a range of difficulties, such as anxiety, depression, behavior problems, ADHD, interpersonal challenges, and parent-child relational conflict. She maintains a particular interest in working with clients suffering from anxiety conditions and OCD. Dr. Karp also offers parent consultation and emotion coaching support. In addition to therapy, she provides psychoeducational assessments to children and adolescents in order to evaluate learning disabilities, ADHD, and gifted status. I'm particularly excited to have Dr. Jen here today because Dr. Jen was my supervisor my first year in private practice, and I think she really shaped how I conduct assessments and provide therapy. I also see her as a bit of a psychology celebrity here in Ottawa, so we are thrilled to have her as a guest. Today, Dr. Jen will be sharing her knowledge and experience about obsessive compulsive disorder, also known as OCD. So Dr. Jen, welcome to The Coping Toolbox. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for your kind words. And it was such a pleasure to work with you and uh, so nice to be part of your podcast today. So I thought we'd start out today by having you just tell us a little bit about OCD. So what are obsessions? What are compulsions? How do those things work together? Absolutely. So obsessions are recurrent and intrusive thoughts, images, or urges that pop into your head and won't go away. And they cause a lot of anxiety and distress. So it's kind of like a worry bell in your brain that gets stuck and keeps sending out these messages of danger and alarm. Another way to think about it is like a brain glitch. So we can all relate to glitches in our phones or our devices that might be sending us an error message. And so it's kind of like that's what happens for, you know, kids who have OCD where their brain is sending them a false message that they then are interpreting as a really important message. So some common types of obsessions would be contamination, which relates to dirt, germs, and illness, bad things happening to yourself or others, symmetry and exactness, need for perfection, and forbidden thoughts around sexuality and religion. Hmm. And in terms of compulsions, so compulsions are repetitive thoughts or actions that you do over and over again to reduce anxiety or discomfort, uh, to reduce the possibility of harm, or to give a sense of completeness. And we know that compulsions are really difficult to stop, even though the individual may want to. Some common compulsions are washing and cleaning, checking, counting and tapping, ordering, arranging, and mental rituals. And the way that these tend to work together is that 
we all actually have intrusive thoughts. So it's a very normative experience that we all we all experience. And so individuals who, who have OCD tend to attribute a lot of meaning and thought and, and importance to those thoughts. And so as a result, they do cause so much distress that people feel compelled to do something to manage that distress. And that's kind of where the compulsions come in. So it's really behaviors um, aimed, our actions aimed at reducing the distress associated with these um, upsetting thoughts. And it creates a, a pretty vicious loop that tends to circle around and around. Okay, so it's sort of the way that you've described it, the thought comes in, um, whatever the obsession is, it probably causes an increase in anxiety and then the compulsion serves to reduce that anxiety. So whatever the behavior is, brings the anxiety down. And temporarily, that probably works really well. But long term, the next time you get the thought, the anxiety goes up. And so that's, that's where that need to do the compulsion must come in. Exactly. And so what happens, Dr. Jen, is that the individual has the short-term relief from, from doing their compulsion, but in the long run, like you said, they feel compelled to do it over and over again, and they don't get to learn two important things. One is that their feared event is highly unlikely to happen, and the other is that they can cope with the anxiety that they're experiencing. Right, right. So can you tell me a little bit about how does OCD develop? What causes OCD? Mm -hmm. So OCD is thought of as a neurobehavioral disorder and neuro because it originates in the brain and behavioral because it affects what we do. Uh, so it's really something that originates, you know, as I said, in the brain. It's not, it's not caused by parenting. It's not caused by any parent actions. And so it's something that, you know, we know that there's a genetic component and that uh, it can tend to run in families in terms of there being a vulnerability that gets passed on. Um, and then there's also an environmental component in the sense that sometimes OCD can show up. It can be out of the blue, but it can also show up after a distressing event. So after a child becomes sick, uh, moving to a new school, parents getting a divorce. So it's not that those events have necessarily caused it, but it, it's, it's raised the child's stress level. And if they have an underlying vulnerability, that kind of could be a trigger for these symptoms to arise. Right. And I think we can all relate to that. Like our stress level goes up and some of these vulnerabilities come out, right? So Exactly. Does exactly. it usually, is there a certain age that it normally starts or, or an age where it's more common for it to start? Sure. So we typically see it in between ages seven to 12. So it's kind of in earlier um childhood. Uh, we know that it tends to be more common in boys than girls in childhood, but by adulthood, we know that women are slightly more affected than men. And if we are kind of looking at overall percentage of individuals with OCD, we'd be looking about two to three percent of the population uh, would would meet criteria for OCD. Okay, so relatively high number of people. Relatively then. high and yeah. quite, uh, yeah, quite common. Right. So you've already talked a little bit about how it's maintained and just sort of the interaction between the thought and the behavior, but is there anything more you want to expand on on how, how OCD behaviors might be maintained? Um, so I think, you know, it, what's important to think about there is really, you know, we kind of talked about that cycle and how that short-term uh, relief is really, um, it's its so difficult for people to stop doing the these behaviors because there's a lot of fears of these you know, thoughts be, being true. And so I think, you know, one thing to think about is the importance that people are attaching to the thoughts. So like I was saying before, you know, 
one thing that differentiates people with OCD from, you know, people that have intrusive thoughts tend to be the importance right. that they're putting on these thoughts. So, for example, if, if, you know, somebody was standing on a bridge, an intrusive thought that may pop into your head is, I want to jump off the bridge. And I think we would tend to think of that thought and kind of brush it off and say, that's weird. I don't want to jump off this bridge um, and just brush it off. But for someone that has sticky thoughts, you know, with OCD, they're going to start to personalize that thought and start to worry that maybe it means that they do want to hurt themselves. And maybe they, you know, are thinking about doing that more seriously. And so because of their, because of the fact that they're treating that thought as really important and meaningful, that then really leads to that cascade of, of other events in terms of feeling the need to have to kind of do an action or a behavior to reduce um, reduce the sense that they, you know, that something bad will happen. I think a lot of times kids have this uh, feeling that something bad is going to happen if they do or don't do a certain action. Right. And so we really want to help kids learn that, you know, they, they need to reduce the compulsive actions that they're doing in order to see that those obsessive thoughts will come and go and we can't really stop them from showing up but we can learn that we don't have to pay attention to them and treat them as serious and important right and as you're talking the thing that's coming to mind for me is you know as, as a parent you're seeing the child's behaviors but you're not seeing what the child is thinking like you don't know what they're thinking right and mm -hmm. i know with ocd there's often you know feelings of shame or or embarrassment or sometimes disgust or you know because they're they're blaming themselves for these thoughts so they might not want to share the thoughts which also probably gets in the way right definitely definitely i think there is a lot of shame as you said dr jen in terms of feeling like something's wrong with them and feeling that these are you know really because sometimes the thoughts can be really odd and really unusual and they don't make sense even to the child themselves mm -hmm. um so i think that uh it's it is important for parents to to be able to create kind of a safe space to talk about whatever might be going on inside if the child is able to articulate that. We know in younger kids, they, we often see compulsive behaviors, but we don't, younger kids often can't articulate the obsession. Right. Um, but as kids start getting older, then they have a better ability to put words to kind of what the thoughts are as well. Right. It makes me think to uh, Dr. Jen, and I don't even, this might have come up when, when I was supervised by you, but the idea of, you know, when we try not to have a thought and how that doesn't work, right? And so, you exactly. know, often these kids are working really hard on trying not to think the thought. And the more we try not to think it, the more the thoughts come in, right? And I, I remember, exactly. I think, talking to you about the example of like, you know, whatever you do, don't think about a pink elephant right now. First thing that happens, that thought pops it's, in your head, right? So it's right. the more exactly. you try not to think about it, the more it's going to be there and going to be present, which is it's really a challenge. Um, I'm curious, uh, Dr. Jen, if so if OCD is left untreated, is this something that, you know, eventually kids are likely to grow out of or just kind of figure out on their own or what's likely to happen if it's left untreated? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So we know that OCD does not go away on its own. We know that it actually tends to worsen if it's left on its own. So it is really important for parents to seek out treatment when they start to see some of these behaviors exhibited in their kids. And the good news is, is that we have, you know, really excellent empirically supported treatments um, that are highly effective. So that that's the good news with OCD is that it is it is treatable, um, but it definitely is, is something that will not typically just resolve by itself. Okay. So, you know, as a parent right now, I would probably be thinking, okay, well, what, what am I looking for? What are some of the signs? What are some of the symptoms? Um, what, what should parents kind of be looking for at this point? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we know that it's really common for kids to have rituals and superstitions, um, especially when they're younger. And one of the things that we are thinking about is kind of how rigid these become. So when there's rigidity around things having to be done a certain way, a certain order, a certain timing, and the child's really not very flexible around shifting that, that's when we can start to think that maybe there's a sign of a problem. We know in kids that some common themes for um, obsessions are harm. That's quite a common theme and contamination. So those would be the two biggest themes that we want to be thinking about. So a child is worried about harm coming to themselves or their family or friends and then contamination around fears of dirt, germs and illness. For adolescents, the themes tend to be more focused on sexuality and religious moral concerns. So those would be some common uh, kind of obsessive themes we'd be looking for. The other piece is around the thoughts. So we know that kids with OCD seek out lots of reassurance, typically from their parents, asking lots of what if questions. What if I'm responsible for this? What if I get sick? What if I make someone else sick? Um, also kind of having to know the answer, kind of just, you know, just relentlessly needing to know the answer to the question. Um, also, you know, if kids are talking about things not feeling right and having to fix them, uh, that would be another cue that we'd want to pay attention to. And thoughts concerning if I do this or don't do this, something bad will happen. So that's a really common right. thought that kids will express is this fear of something bad happening. Um, as you said, Dr. Jen, a lot of strong emotions. We may see anxiety, sadness, anger, shame and guilt. Uh, we also may see kids, you know, experiencing physical symptoms. So sometimes kids are going to have headaches and stomach aches, panic symptoms, muscle tension. Um, so that would also be something to keep an eye on. And you're not talking about the odd stomach ache here or there. We're talking about more chronic kind of right. regular types of physical symptoms. And then behaviors. So you might see your child engage in excessive hand washing, for example. And, you know, I'm talking about hand washing to the point that the child's hands are getting raw, red, maybe even bleeding sometimes. Um, asking parents to engage in rituals. So asking the parent to wash their hands more often or clean their clothes or wash certain things in the house. Checking behavior. So a child is constantly checking locks, uh, checking, you know, the, checking the doors, checking things around the house. Uh, you might also see your child repeating actions. You may see them getting up and down out of a chair many times or uh, repeating tapping or touching things. Sometimes kids also will doubt that something was done correctly. So they will kind of have to go back and, and see if something was completed or not. And then there's also avoidance. And that's also a big part of OCD too. So you might see a child avoiding opening a door, touching a doorknob or, or you know, avoiding touching a light switch. Uh, you might have a child who wants to avoid bringing their backpack into their room because their backpack's contaminated from school or being around certain people. So maybe, you know, sometimes even within a family, a child may start to feel that a parent is contaminated in some way and may start to distance, which is really sad mm -hmm. and unfortunate. Um, and so they may actually not want to be around that parent very much. So those would be some of the common things in terms of, you know, what areas these behaviors can affect. I mean, it's pretty broad. So we know that OCD can affect a child's grades at school. Um, so, you know, their school performance may affect their friendships. They may start to pull away from their friends and not really want to be around their friends very much. As I said before, it can affect family relationships. It can affect a child's uh, self-care. And often we see some of these surfacing around um, 
like meal times and bedtimes. So certain times of the day, I would say from my experience, bedtime seems to be a particular time where we see a lot of rituals coming out, right? In terms of behaviors, having to do certain things before the child can go to bed. And sometimes these, I've had, you know, kids where sometimes it's taking one to two hours uh, before they're able to actually go to sleep because they ha- they feel they have to do all right. of these things. Yeah. So really interfering with their life, right? And just really their ability to, to move forward with daily activities. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So what, one thing I thought might be helpful, Dr. Jen, is to talk. I know a lot of times parents are, are confused about what is an OCD behavior versus like a habit. That's, I was so just I thinking about helpful. that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Kind of run through just a way to distinguish those a little bit. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. So we know that OCD, first of all, is time consuming. And typically a habit would not be. Um, and so for thinking about, let's say, a child going to bed and having to line up their teddy bears on their bed. OK, so somebody with OCD, you know, this may become a very elaborate ritual around placement and taking lots of time. Whereas for a child without OCD that just has the habit, it may be a kind of a, a fairly quick lining up of the teddy bears and then they're feeling okay. Um, We know OCD behavior disrupts normal routine, as you were saying, whereas typically a habit would not really be disruptive of, of routine. OCD causes distress or frustration. Often the child or teen does not want to be doing the things that they're doing. They wish they didn't have to. They again feel this need that they they feel they they have to be doing these things, but they don't want to. Whereas often a habit creates enjoyment. So that's an important distinction to remember. So when a child is engaging in a habit that makes them feel comfortable or safe or content, usually they, they get pleasure out of it. Right. Uh, with OCD, like I said, the child believes they have to do the behavior, whereas with a habit, the child wants to do them. Sometimes with OCD, we see we see bizarre or unusual behaviors happening that don't really have any connection to mm-hmm. kind of the, uh, you know, the concern. So we may have a child who is um, having to tap their desk 10 times with their pencil uh, in order to feel okay to go to sleep, you know, where that doesn't really seem to relate to the act of kind of making your bed or getting comfortable, you know, in your space. Yeah. Uh, whereas most rituals are, sorry, most habits are pretty ordinary. We would think them as fairly typical. Right. Uh, OCD behaviors often become more elaborate over time. So that's an important distinction, whereas habits typically become less important and change over time. So, you know, a child who is, uh, if we think about the example of the bedtime ritual, you know, lining up all of their their teddy bears um, and then having to uh, check their room for spiders and then have to go to the bathroom in and out, you know, a number of different times. So it ends up taking up more and more time and kind of morphing into this, you know, expansive, you know, ritual. Whereas for a habit, again, that's something that typically would not be the case. And, and it might shift over time as a child starts to, you know, get older, that they may not feel the need to do some of those things anymore. Right. Typically with OCD behavior, it must be done really precisely. So it's there's a lot of kind of um, uh, r- routines and rules around how the behavior is conducted. Whereas with a habit, it typically can be skipped or changed. So for example, if a child is late getting to bed and it's more of a habit, they could probably skip lining up their teddy bears and, and they'd be okay. Whereas for a child with OCD, they would not be able to go to sleep until all of these steps have been done. Right. I was thinking too, if, if you know, somebody disrupted the, the, the pattern of the, the stuffies, right, and moved them around, 
if it's OCD, they're probably going to get quite upset and distressed. Quite upset, distressed, and may have to start over, right? So they may actually have to go back to the beginning, line everything up again, do it all again. So that's going to take more and more time. Yeah. And as a parent too, I think you kind of fall into these sort of traps, right? And you know, where, where you're trying to help your child and you're trying to help them get through it and you get pulled in to a lot of these behaviors too, right? Absolutely. And that is a big piece in terms of the uh, accommodation piece that ends up inadvertently happening. And it it makes complete sense, right? It's so difficult to see our kids struggling Mm -hmm. and suffering. We want to do what we can to help fix it and make it better. But with with OCD in particular, we know that parental accommodation often worsens the behavior inadvertently. Right, right. So um, are you okay now if we kind of move, we switch gears and switch to the the treatment piece? So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, so if someone is showing symptoms of OCD, what would the treatment look like? Yeah, so the treatment has a number of components. I, I think it's always important to start out with some education around what OCD is, how is it maintained, and really normalizing intrusive thoughts, that we all experience intrusive thoughts. And it's really about, again, the importance that the child or teen is attaching to those thoughts that makes it become more of an obsessive thought. Um, so after, after we go through the education piece, then we want to map out the OCD. So we want to identify their triggers. We want to talk about what the obsessive thoughts are. We want to look at their compulsions. So what are the repetitive actions that they're doing? We also want to look at areas they're avoiding too. So that's a really important right. piece. And one way that I typically do that is also with fear ratings using a fear thermometer. So getting the child, let's say on a scale from zero to 10, 10 being the most anxious they've ever felt, zero being not at all, and five somewhere in the middle, I would have the child rate how anxious they would be to not do the compulsion. So to experience the obsessive thought, uh, so maybe the thought is my hands are dirty, I just touched the table, my hands are full of germs and I'm gonna get sick, and then to not wash their hands. Right. So how how distressing and anxiety provoking would it be to not engage in the repetitive action? Uh, so we map all of that out. Uh, we also do some cognitive work. So we, you know, typically teaching kids to talk back to their how to talk back to their OCD to give it a name. So we try to externalize it. So we might call it Mr. Bossy or Bossy Pants or Mr. Jeremy or whatever the child wants to say. With teens, typically just OCD. Yeah. Usually, <laughs> kind of <laughs> yep. want want to call it not Mr. Bossy Pants fine. usually, but yeah, <laughs> not Mr. Bossy Pants. Um, and. And I often make an analogy that I think most kids and teens relate to, which is OCD thoughts as junk mail. So I talk a lot about how, you know, we have an inbox in our brain, which is where the important messages go and the messages that we want to focus on. And we have junk mail folder. And sometimes what's happening is that the junk mail messages are getting sorted into the inbox. Right. And so we're treating those junk mail messages are really as really important, whereas really they're, you know, they're junk mail and we really don't need to be paying them very much attention. Um, and then we get into really kind of the crux of the treatment, which is exposure and response prevention or ERP. And we know that this is really the key component of the treatment approach for OCD. And essentially what that involves is exposing yourself to a trigger and then not doing the repetitive action that typically would bring you the short-term relief. So we, you know, we often make uh, hierarchies where we'll kind of come up with, you know, using like a ladder approach of maybe some easier targets, moderate targets, and difficult targets uh, with, and then 
we can kind of jump around according to how willing the child is or the teen is to engage in those different uh, exposure exercises. Um, but it's also important to, for kids and teens to understand the rationale behind why we're doing this because it's, it's very hard work. It's not easy work to do. And so one analogy that I like to give is of a dog who, you know, and a lot of us, you know, especially with the, the pandemic got dogs <laughs> or have had dogs, or, <laughs> uh, myself included. And, um, and so we think about a dog coming to the table and feeding the dog, you know, human food and the dog's getting sick. So the dog is not managing that well. And we're told by the vet that we have to stop feeding the dog because we're really making the dog get sick. And so what happens if we sort of stop, but then we still occasionally feed the dog from the table, the dog is not going to learn that this is kind of a, you know, a no-go behavior. The dog is going to keep begging and hoping maybe this will be the time that I get that little treat or get that morsel. So it's similar to why we really need to work on, you know, really stopping the compulsions, because as long as we're still doing some of them, we're not really giving our ourselves a chance to learn again that we can cope with the anxiety and that our feared outcome is highly unlikely. So I think important for, for individuals to understand why we're doing that. And with younger kids, we often want to use reward systems. So we know that, again, this is hard work. And so we really want to reward the effort that kids are making uh, to do this, uh, do the work of exposure and response prevention. Okay. Okay, great. Um, anything that's important to avoid with OCD? Is there anything, um, you know, just to kind of flag for, for parents or for others that might be involved? Anything that we should be watching out for? Absolutely. So definitely we want to avoid shaming and blaming our kids. Um, as I was mentioning before, it's very difficult to stop engaging in compulsions, even when you want to. So we really don't want to punish our kids for doing rituals. Mm -hmm. um, we, we really want to take a supportive approach um, and a compassionate approach. I think it's also important for parents to understand that kids need to feel anxious for the exposure to be effective. Right. So there is there is sometimes an instinct right to to want to stop our kids from feeling anxious and swoop in and and, and kind of save them or fix fix it uh, but really for this treatment to work kids do need to feel some anxiety and so as parents parents also have to learn to tolerate the the discomfort that may come in themselves from watching our kids kind of going through you know this experience it reminds um, me yeah uh, what you're just saying there dr jen uh, i just saw something the other day and it had to do with basically you know, our job as parents is not to stop our kids from feeling emotions, it's to help them manage the emotions that they feel, right? And, and exactly. you know, I think that for my own life as well, right? My personal life as well as for, for practice. So, yeah. I it's think so, so important to remember that, right? That we, we really, our kids need to learn because the truth is anxiety is not the enemy, right? Mm -hmm. And anxiety is not dangerous. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes we have this sense that it feels like it is, but it really is not. So we really want our kids to learn that they can feel these things and they can be okay and manage them, as you said. Yeah. I think the other thing for parents is we really want to try to to avoid reassurance as much as possible and we really want to avoid accommodation and so again really tough to do um, 
parents end up often participating in rituals. They often end up reassuring that the child's fine, they're safe, they're okay, nothing bad is going to happen. And they often inadvertently facilitate avoidance. So they'll often allow their child to avoid, you know, touching the doorknob. Maybe they'll open the door for them so they don't have to, or they'll turn the light switch on, or, you know, they'll let the child not go upstairs alone. They'll accompany them. All these things are very loving and caring acts um, that are all coming from a good place. But we know from the research that this is related to more severe um, OCD functioning and worse treatment response. Right. So, uh, so we really do, you know, want to work with parents on reducing this accommodation behavior. And sometimes it can be tri tricky because sometimes kids and teens may refuse treatment and may decide that they are not ready to engage in this work. So then, what does the parent do? So the the good news is that there is um, there there is support for parents in working with a therapist or a psychologist to reduce the accommodation that doesn't involve um, the child's behavior. Um, there's a really excellent uh, treatment approach called SPACE, uh, which is supporting parents uh, with anxious childhood emotion. Hmm. And it's, it's a treatment approach that essentially focuses completely on the what's in, what's in the parent's control, which is the parents being able to decide what they will or will not do, but in a really supportive way. And so uh, they talk about, you know, um, identifying your child's emotion and really presenting a confidence in their coping ability. So you may say to your child, I see this is really hard for you and I know you can handle it. So you're kind of integrating, you know, both the acceptance of their struggle and the confidence in their coping ability. Great, great. I'm just wondering if there's anything else that you think is important to mention today, um, or if, you know, maybe we can talk about three key points or takeaways uh, from today's uh, session. Mm -hmm. So I guess one thing I didn't mention was about the importance of parents um, being able to uh, provide support that's developmentally appropriate for their child. So with younger kids, parents will likely be much more involved, really become almost like a parenting coach and a parent coach in terms of helping their child do some of this work together and maybe actually doing the exposures with them. Um, as kids start to get older, it's important for especially for teens to really have more say in how they want their parents to be involved. Maybe they just want their parents to check in on how they're doing and just tell them, you know, good, good job, you're working really hard and just provide that support, but they may really want to have more independence in how they're managing the treatment. So I think just, again, that developmental piece and recognizing that it can shift according to the child's age and, and to the child themselves, the child or teen. Um, so that's just one piece. Um, so I guess in terms of the takeaways, Dr. Jen, that you were asking about, I would, you know, I think really important for parents to come away knowing that OCD is treatable. Uh, the earlier treatment is better than than waiting it out. So really, when you start to see some of these signs in your kids, it's best not to take a wait and see approach. Uh, I think it, it is important to follow up and possibly speak to your family doctor, maybe to get some referrals mm -hmm. uh, to see a psychologist. You, you do want to ideally see a psychologist who has experience in working with OCD and exposure and response prevention. Yeah, I think that's an important point, point to Jen, uh, Dr. Jen, just like, you know, if you're having concerns, just t asking the family doctor, because they often have experience, like you say, 2% of people have this. So they often have yeah. some experience and kind of know when, when is the time to move forward with a referral to a psychologist. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah, exactly.
And, and the other thing you can always do too as a parent is check in with your child's teacher um, and see if they're noticing any signs at school. You know, are they have they noticed anything, any kind of behaviors or uh, so that may just be just to get some more information about, you know, in different in a different setting. Um, the other, another takeaway is that, as I said before, anxiety is not dangerous. We really want to instill that confidence that our kids can cope with it and we don't need to make it go away. So we don't have to get rid of our anxiety, really helping our kids learn that they can manage kind of experiencing it and help boost their sense of, you know, competence and confidence in kind of managing, managing things. Um, and I guess the last point would just be, again, you know, around, you know, providing that kind of combined message of accepting the child's feeling and how difficult this may be and that confidence in our child's ability to cope. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Jen, and for all of the helpful tips. And as always, a big thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you so much.